Storyteller's Thread, a monthly podcast devoted to young adult literature and the art of storytelling. I'm your host, Sean Connors. On each episode, we invite an author for young adults to take us inside their work, and in doing so, to talk about their writing process, their inspiration for writing for young readers, and the general ins and outs of earning a living as a professional storyteller. So, whether you're a compulsive reader, an aspiring writer, a teacher or librarian, or simply a frustrated reader who's counting the hours until you get home and dive back into that novel that's waiting for you on your nightstand, this is the place for you. Hey, it's April 1st, 2021. Thanks for being here. I feel like I should begin this episode of the podcast by taking a moment to recognize and celebrate the return of spring. Things are finally greening up here in the southern U.S., and after the extreme cold we recently experienced, I couldn't be more grateful for that, so welcome spring. I also want to let you know that beginning next month, I'm going to be taking a hiatus from this podcast. As I've said in the past, I conceived of the idea for this project at a time when I felt like I desperately needed some form of creative outlet in my life. And the opportunity to learn from the different creators I've talked with over the past three years has been nothing short of incredible, really. But with work, a pandemic, and teaching and podcasting during a pandemic, I've begun to feel like I need to step off the treadmill for a bit just to catch my breath. My plan is to be back, but in the meantime, I want to thank you, as always, for the support that you've shown this program over the past few years. It really, really means a lot to me. Before I go on break, we have a show to do. For reasons you'll soon learn, my guest this month is nothing if not a woman of many talents. Born and raised in southern Ontario, Sarah Raleigh is a self-declared fangirl who grew up consuming everything from manga to science fiction and fantasy TV, to Japanese role-playing games. Somewhere along the line, Sarah's desire to be a girl with freakish superpowers led her to begin writing stories about such girls. In 2016, she published Fate of Flames, which tells the story of four teenage girls with the power to control the elements who come together to save the world from evil. In the next two years, Sarah published two sequels, Siege of Shadows, and Legacy of Light, which together with Fate of Flames comprise her popular Effigies fantasy trilogy. Granted, many of us lesser mortals might find the prospect of writing one, let alone three, young adult novels daunting, but not Sarah, who, concurrent with writing the first book in her Effigies trilogy, also wrote and defended a dissertation as a graduate student in the English department at McMaster University in Canada. Today, Sarah's completing a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Ottawa, where her research and scholarship concern representations of race and gender in popular media culture, youth culture, and post-colonialism. She's edited special issues in academic journals such as Popular Music and Society and Atlantis, Critical Studies in Gender, Culture, and Social Justice. And as if being a fiction writer and an academic weren't enough, Sarah is also a freelance writer who's written essays for media outlets such as The Washington Post, The Conversation, Quill and Choir, and Zora Magazine. And on top of all that, she dedicates time to working in the community, leading writing workshops for youths and adults. 
Now, with that resume, I think it's fair to say that Sarah has proven herself to be a woman with freakish superpowers. In the course of our conversation, we touched on several different topics, including the ways in which Sarah's research interests shape the fiction she writes, why she's learned to value perseverance as a writer, and her newest book, The Bones of Rune, which is scheduled to be released later this year in September, and which is the first installment of a second trilogy, this one set in Victorian London. Has spring arrived in your part of Canada yet, Sarah? Um, it's raining a lot, actually. There was a big torrential rain just last night. Technically, it is spring, but um, I don't know. I mean, I guess the rain helps to sort of signal in the spring, but in terms of the weather, it's still kind of cold. Did you guys get that extreme cold back in late February? Yeah, we did. It was very, very cold. Yeah, same here, which... In this part of the country, I'm in the southern United States, and we didn't know what to do. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, but, you know, also, I've been staying home a lot, obviously, because of uh, the pandemic. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm gauging the weather, like, in the same way as I used to, because I used to, you know, go out all the time. <laughs> I know what you mean. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read that your parents immigrated to southern Ontario from Nigeria. Is that right? Yeah. What led them to end up in Southern Ontario? My dad was a doctor, a medical doctor. Okay. And, um, yeah, he just, that's where he went to study, and it's where he went to work. And my mom also is a nurse, so. So how did you come to get started writing fiction? I actually have always loved storytelling since I was a little kid. Mostly just because I loved the stories, you know, like my brothers loved comic books. So they kind of got me into comic books and all kinds of cartoons and TV shows and books. And I just loved all kinds of stories wherever I could get them, even video games. And actually for a while I used to draw because my brothers drew. But eventually I just kind of fell out of drawing and I started to kind of pay more attention to telling stories via writing. So writing was just like my way of storytelling. I, I always knew that I wanted to tell stories. It was just a matter of like, well, through what medium? And I just, you know, probably in middle school gravitated towards writing as my medium. And I just kept doing it. So doing this podcast over the past three years, one of the things that's really struck me is how many of the writers and artists I've talked to have been able to identify adults who encourage their creativity as children. I'm curious, was that the case for you growing up? Did you have people around you who encouraged you to write, who encouraged you to be creative? Yeah, I mean, again, my two older brothers were creative and, and they drew. And, you know, I remember my fourth grade teacher I wrote a little book when I was in grade four. My fourth grade teacher was like, you know, I can't wait to go to your book signing one day. So I think a lot of teachers along the way have always been uh, creative. There was a creative writing program at my uh, middle school at the time. So again, like just fostering that creativity. It was mostly during those formative years, you know, and then you would go online and you would see people 
that wrote just like you, you know, they, they cared about writing, you know, even if they're writing things like fan fiction. So that was pretty cool. And, and seeing people, you know, I wrote a little bit of fan fiction, mostly like anime fan fiction and stuff like that and getting some good feedback. Yeah. I was like, whoa, awesome. I'm going to keep going, you know, so. Yeah, I've been really, um, that, that's another pattern. I've noticed is how many writers have dabbled in fan fiction at some point, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. And then just as you pointed out, talked about the value of getting the validation from people in that community. Absolutely. I'm fascinated by the fact, I've got to tell you, personally, I'm fascinated by the fact that as a writer, you have a foot in several different worlds. You not only write fiction for teenagers, but you're also an academic, a columnist. Would you mind talking a little bit about your academic work and specifically what your research and scholarship focuses on? Absolutely. Yes. So, you know, I'm definitely, like you said, an academic columnist, fiction writer, and all of those things just kind of came together because of just different interests. I mean, I am as a PhD sort of graduate, I'm a graduate of the Department of English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University. And uh, my current research concerns creative writing, representation of race in young adult literature, you know, which I write young adult literature, so it just kind of works out like that. Popular media culture, youth culture and postcolonialism. My ongoing postdoctoral research kind of builds on my interest in representations of race in fiction by considering, um, you know, African and African diasporic youth, which was a key area of my dissertation, not only in terms of youth-oriented contemporary literature like young adult literature in middle grade, but also in terms of what that literature can tell us about affective belonging, you know, citizenship. Uh, youth political agency, that kind of thing. So that was kind of, that's been what I've been doing on the academic side. And, you know, so much of it bleeds into the real world. So it kind of fits into my own creative writing. But also, you know, there are things that I can write about for the public. So that's why, you know, you sort of see work that I've done for the Washington Post or work that I've done for Teen Vogue or CBC, all of these things have something to do with, you know, critical race theory, youth culture, and other things that were kind of threads in my, in my academic work. It's just a different kind of writing. It, you know, like whether you're writing, you know, a novel for children or whether you're writing you know, an academic paper for a journal, or whether you're writing work for the Washington Post, it requires the same level of, you know, organization and things like that, but you're writing for a different audience. So you just have to know kind of how to switch from one audience to another. But in a way, you can still build upon the work that you've done as a PhD. You mentioned a moment ago, organization. And that led me to wonder as we'll talk about, you published your first novel in 2014 and your second, and I believe 2016. 
And you also defended your dissertation in 2016, which led me to wonder, were you writing novels concurrent with writing a dissertation? Because if you were, that is some serious <laughs> superwoman stuff you've got going. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was. Were you really? Yeah. I wrote, uh, I think, all three Epigee books at the same time as writing my dissertation. Oh, my gosh. How, how did you do that? Like, what was your writing schedule like? I just can't imagine how you could do that. I sometimes also can't imagine how I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I also wonder. Um, I mean, I think that it just helped to have, you know, when you're writing a, a dissertation, you have a lot of time. You're not struggling to go from one class to another. You you have the research, you know, the grant money, the research money, you know. But also, you, you just have to have incredible organizational skills, like I've said, time management skills. And there were things that I, I think I had to give up, you know. Like, there were times when I might have wanted to go out and, you know, I can't because I have this deadline. But, you know, once you finish your deadline, you can go out and do things. So it's just a matter of prioritizing. But I think it, it was a lot to do, which is why I kind of needed a couple years <laughs> after I graduated to kind of just like relax and and kind of decompress a little bit. Yeah, I can totally understand that. You mentioned that you earned your doctorate in English and Cultural Studies. I'm curious, given the fact that you were interested in writing fiction from a very young age, what led you to earn a doctorate in English as opposed to, say, doing an MFA or a PhD in creative writing? I got into English in a weird way because actually, because my father was a, a medical doctor, so I went into biology and I got a biology degree first and I did English as a minor. But then I realized that, you know, I'm not really super into, you know, the idea of being a doctor and all the blood and stuff like that, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, I think there are, there are things that I'm sensitive about. So, you know, I had actually um, one of my teachers who was very young. She was like doing her PhD, I think, at McMaster at the time. And she she noticed that I was really good at sort of English and cultural studies, popular media, culture, literature type stuff. And she wrote a letter, a recommendation for me without me even asking her, to the English department at McMaster. And then they wrote a letter of recommendation for me to come over and get an English degree. And I just decided to do it. And I already had enough English credits at the time that I only needed two more years in English to get an honors English degree at the undergrad level. And then again, I guess by the time I finished, I realized that it was just something that was I really liked, that I was really interested in. And to be honest, I didn't really know where else to go. <laughs> so I just, I just continued to do it. And it's funny, you know, the more I did it, the more into it I got, the more I understood how important it was that I was doing it for me and in terms of what I could contribute to my community. And I just kept going. So do you have any formal training in creative writing or are you wholly self-taught? I'm fully self-taught. 
it's mostly, I mean, I did take, I took a couple of courses in undergrad, but one of the things is what's really great is they're now offering much more, you know, courses and things like that for people who aren't doing an MFA or anything like that. Like they're offering more creative writing programs, creative writing electives, courses, that kind of thing. When I was doing my undergrad, it was, you know, we had creative writing courses, but they were very infrequent. So I took what I could, but largely I taught myself through reading a lot of books on craft, watching, you know, YouTube videos of writers and what they would say about their writing process and reading, a lot of reading and just a lot of writing, getting feedback. You know, I got rejected a lot, but during those times when I would get feedback, that was extremely helpful. And I would internalize that because I, you know, felt that this was, you know, a a precious moment of getting feedback from some kind of expert, whether it was an agent or an editor. So I would take all of that advice and I would use it. And I do think that the work that I did, you know, while I was doing my English and cultural studies degree in undergrad and grad school, I think all of that helped with my fiction work and writing fiction. Because again, when you're writing essays, it does help. It helps you figure out how to build an argument, how to, I don't know, just how to organize your thoughts, how to communicate, really. And I think that, you know, the different strands that I do, being a columnist, being a fiction writer, and all of that stuff, I don't know that I will be doing it as well as I do now if I had not gone through the English department and gotten, you know, an English degree, especially at the graduate level, because you're not only learning how to write, but you're also reading a lot of books and you're analyzing a lot of books and you're figuring out what makes those books tick, what makes them good. And all of that stuff, you can bring them into your fiction writing. I think that's so important. In my job at the University of Arkansas, I work with undergraduates who have the opportunity to major in creative writing. And I'm really struck by how frequently they tell me they don't read. Yeah. And it just, it blows my mind because as you're saying, like, how do you learn to write fiction if you don't immerse yourself in reading fiction and understanding the conventions and how people play with the conventions or write against the conventions? It just blows my mind. Mm. I mean, I think for a lot of young people today, it's just, I I do wonder, you know, this may be like me being, you know, an old millennial, I guess, in, in, uh, you know, as opposed to like Gen Z and stuff. But I do wonder if growing up in the area of social media has changed people. So younger people have maybe it's they're more used to that visual media. And the media of, of writing in, in this fast-paced environment and reading in this fast-paced environment that it actually becomes more difficult to sit down and read a whole book. Mm. 
You know what I mean? Because it's just such a different way of reading than, you know, reading tweets and watching TikToks and all of that stuff. And um, I, I try to have empathy, I guess, because I didn't grow up on social media. I don't know what it would have been like for me. Like maybe my attention span wouldn't be what it is. But yeah, reading reading is so important. Reading is so important if you want to learn how to write. So in my head, I'm trying to put together a timeline for your writing career. Were you writing fiction as an undergrad, as a hobby for pleasure? I was writing mostly like fan fiction and just stuff that, yeah, like hobby type stuff, but not my own original stuff. I think in undergrad, it was hard for me to write my own original stuff because I always, I always had great ideas, but I got messed up in the middle. I just didn't know like, okay, so what happens? You know, I would have, you know, a beginning thought out and an end thought out, but how do we get there? So I, it would discourage me a whole lot. And then once I started to do my graduate studies, and I think I learned a little bit more about reading and books and stuff like that, that's when I started to figure out, you know, this is how we can get from point A to point B, from point B to point C, and so on. So that's when I started to work on my own, like to actually write books. I was going to ask you, do you remember when you committed to the idea of, you know, I'm going to try to write for publication? I'm going to seriously try to write for publication. And if so, what motivated that decision for you? Well, I always, I think it was actually in my later years of undergrad. And, you know, there are some pretty tough things happening in my life. And just being able to sit down and read a fiction book really helped. Just being able to sit down and read a YA book really helped transport me out of what was going on and into this world. And in that moment, I kind of realized that this is something that is really important and powerful. And I started thinking, I really want to do this. I, and I think I can do this. I think I actually can do it, not just in terms of I have the capabilities of writing, which at that point I knew I had the capabilities of writing. But also at that point I was in English and, you know, there was just the sense of, you know, there's no longer this feeling of well, I have to do medical school. Mm-hmm. Because when I was doing my first degree, it was very much, well, I have to do medical school, so I probably won't be able to do any kind of, creative fiction writing. So I might as well just not be super serious about it. But once I did my English degree, I realized that not only do I have a knack for this, but now it may be possible for me to do it. And, you know, if if these people, I mean, if, you know, such and such writer and such and such writer can get published, why can't I, you know, it's, I think it just needed, I just needed a shift, a shift in thinking from being able to say, oh, no, you know, this isn't for me. I'm not one of those people to be able to say, you know what? Yes, I can. And, and to give myself that grace and that vote of confidence to be able to say, you know what? I'm not going to think of myself 
in the negative anymore. I'm going to think of myself in the positive that, yes, I can do this. I am capable of doing it. And why not? So that's when I started to really do the research, like, how does one get published? You know, I joined sites online, like I joined forums online, and I looked at everything, gathered as much information as I could about agents, the the big five publishers in New York, and I didn't really know those things before, at least like not intimately and how they worked in the imprints and stuff like that. So, you know, once I decided I'm going to try and get published, that's when I started to do all of that work and research. I love what you're saying because I think I think the critical thing is the, the level of confidence, as you said. You know, as I talk with writers more and more, as I listen to podcasts on creativity, as I read about creativity, that seems to be the thing. Is like the moment when you're able to see yourself as a writer and, as you said, to say, yeah, I can do this. I believe I can do this. It seems like that's the distinguishing factor for so many people is when you're able to make mm. that switch. Yeah, one shouldn't hold themselves back, but I think, you know, we hold ourselves back a lot. We hold ourselves back when we don't have that confidence. And sometimes we don't have that confidence because you weren't given that confidence. You may not have had, you know, adults in your life that pushed you and said, you can do this. Or you may have adults in your life that kind of said, you know, oh, you're good at this, but, you know, you should be an engineer. (laughs) You know what I mean? 100%. That's why I ask you that question about having that adult presence in your life who could encourage you to be creative. Because Mm. as I say, I'm really struck by how important it is to have that person at a young age. Yeah. And I think there's a difference. There's definitely a difference between encouraging somebody to be creative and encouraging someone to pursue a creative career. Hmm. Because you can encourage someone to be creative just as, you know, something that's fun. But then when they say, I want to be an artist, they might say, well, wait a second, you might not make a lot of money and, you know, you don't want to be a starving artist. And they might try and push you away from that, not not out of malice, but just out of concern that it's true that, you know, there are a lot of people that are writing and a lot of people that are doing art and they don't have that kind of financial stability. And I think oftentimes, you know, your parents want you to have a better life than they did, or they want you to just have a good life. And for them, that means financial stability. So, you know, oftentimes you might have young people that, yeah, their creativity when it comes to little projects is fine. But then once they start to say, I want to be a writer, or I want to be an artist, or I want to be this and that their parents might not be for it. So it it really is important. Once you know that your kid is very, very interested in pursuing this as a career, they really need that support. So you you really should give them that support and push them and say, it is possible for you. And here are the ways in which you can professionalize. I mentioned, Sarah, that you published your debut novel in 2014, Featherbound, mm-hmm. with Strange Chemistry, which was an imprint, I believe, of the British-based Angry Robot books. How did the opportunity to publish Featherbound come about? It was just a typical, you know, I wrote, I wrote the book, sent it to my agent, and she sent it out to publishers. 
and there was a list of publishers that we sent it to and strange chemistry said they wanted the book but for that particular book even though it was published the imprint i think a month after the book published collapsed it didn't have the resources anymore and it closed down i read about that and i would have to imagine that was sort of an inflection point for you mm. publishing your first book only to see the imprint go out of business like a month or two later how did you deal with that like did you consider giving up on the writing at that point i don't know if i considered giving up but it was extremely difficult it was difficult cuz i just you hear stories of people that they get these huge seven-figure deals or six-figure deals and things like that, like from the very first book that they've ever written. <laughs> and and uh, I know that those stories are kind of just pushed out there to promote the book, not necessarily to promote reality, <laughs> the reality of most writers. Mm -hmm. But it just hurts. I was just like, well, why not me? It's like you're kind of limping into the game instead of, you know, starting off the block all healthy and running, all the other horses limping out the gate instead. But I just kept going, you know? Yeah, well, two years later, he published the first book in the Affigy series, right? Yeah, and again, that couldn't have been possible unless I kept going. I just, you know, decided I have another book, uh, another story to tell. And I think that's the most important thing is that you try to have multiple stories to tell and you just don't know where it's going to land. I mean, I'm still not at the point where I'm getting like, you know, these huge six figure deals or anything like that. But, you know, I just keep putting my work out there and hoping that eventually something will gain traction. And it's like, instead of leaping out of the gate, you're taking it one step, one little toe in front of the other. And I think that's also okay. It's okay to start slow. I, I've sometimes, and this is a bit sad, but, you know, there are people in my, my life who've been like, you know, you're not like so-and-so author who got like the seven-figure deal, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like sometimes they compare you to different people and it's like, no, I'm not. And most people aren't. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like vast majority of people aren't. Like you're not doing enough, but you have to be proud of the progress that you've made. And it's okay if your journey is different than someone else's, because your journey is going to be different than someone else's. It's okay that your journey is a little slower than others. And you're really taking it one step at a time, because every single time I took a step forward, I learned something. I learned something important that helped me to become a better writer, better storyteller. And I really think that you know, there are people that rush and they, you know, they get to their destination fast. And there are people who kind of take their times like that tortoise in the hare kind of, you know, folktale, right? And it's okay if you go slowly is, is advice that I would give people. It's okay if, if you have those kind of imprint disasters at the beginning. Just keep at it and know that there are so many different ways to get your work out there. Keep writing and eventually you'll get to where you need to go. I so appreciate the information you're sharing right now. I know that there's people who listen to this podcast who aspire to publish their work and the experience and the knowledge that you're sharing is so, so important. I mentioned a moment ago that you published the first book in your Effigies series in 2016. Mm -hmm. 
For listeners who aren't familiar with the series, would you mind sharing an overview of what it's about? It's Pacific Rim meets Sailor Moon. (laughs) It's about a group of young women, of teen girls who have superpowers and like the Avengers, they have to fight these monsters, right? That feel like nobody knows where they came from, but these nightmare-like monsters called phantoms. Society has created different protections against them, but the only ones that can really truly kill these monsters are these teen girls. So they come together as a small group, almost like a girl group, because there's only about four of them, and they have to learn to work together as they're also learning how to be teen girls and have so much pressure on you because everybody knows who they are. They're not masked superheroes. They're very much celebrities, like social media celebrities. They have their own fandoms. They have all the pressure, all the news is on them. So they have to navigate being heroes in the spotlight. My question here is going to seem like I'm shifting in a different track, but I'm asking this because I I want to get your thoughts and come back to the books that you're writing. In 2020, you published an open letter to the publishing industry on the website Quill and Choir. And in it, you described how inequalities in publishing create emotional burdens for black writers. And specifically, you argued that it's not enough for black writers to tell a story. Instead, they have to tell a story that white publishers will recognize is sufficiently black. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about that and how you found it to be the case? Well, I think that, you know, sometimes when people talk about films about black people and they've often mentioned that, I guess before Black Panther, the films that you can often find black people in are films about gangs, police brutality, or slavery. So just very um, limited, a limited framework of what black people could be in stories. Whereas other people could have, you know, the full range of, of storytelling in terms of mainstream stories. There just wasn't a lot. And it's kind of the same for, for books in a way where, you know, we're writing in a gendered and racialized space. You know, the publishing industry is a racialized space, it's a gendered space. There are mostly behind the scenes in terms of editors, in terms of agents, publishers, you know, the people at the helm. Vast majority of them are white. And, and historically, the publishing industry has produced books for white consumption. Historically, not exclusively, but historically, I think the New York Times has mentioned that since the 1950s, only 5% of Anglophone books published by the American publishing industry have been by people of color. And I would say in general, most of sort of the leisure sort of entertainment has, has largely been, you know, produced by white people, directors and such for a white audience. And it's not that, you know, if you're black or if you're Asian, it's not for you, but it's that you're sort of put in a position where you're supposed to identify with the white gaze or identify with white art and so on and so forth. So 
what that means is that a lot of the times when the publishing industry, which is largely a white space, wants books about black people, they want their idea of blackness. Their idea of blackness is what they consider authentic. So this could be books about police brutality, or it could be Afrocentric fantasy, but in a very kind of surface level way, right? Like Black Panther kind of, you know, or, or just surface level, like, oh, it's it's fantasy, but instead of the European gods, it's the Yoruba Orishas and stuff like that. And it's stuff that they can kind of get, but the stuff that doesn't make sense to them because it doesn't sort of fit into those boxes, they might reject because it doesn't fit into those boxes. Like one of the first books that I ever tried to get published was a book about a Nigerian main character, but she was Nigerian Canadian like me. And she just went on an an adventure and the adventure wasn't necessarily about her blackness or about her ethnicity or culture. It was just her going on an adventure. And I had people say, well, she needs to be more black or the story needs to be more black. It needs to be more recognizably black. You know, she needs to talk more black and so on and so forth. And I'm like, I don't even like, what does that mean? I'm black and this is how I talk. Right. So, you know, there's no one way for black people to talk, but it was just this idea that they have this fantasy or this conception, this construction of blackness in their minds. And as a black author, if you want to get published, oftentimes you have to sort of fit that, that whatever you want to call it, that framework, I guess, that makes sense to them. Now, it's not every, every editor that thinks like that. I think especially the more that black authors have talked about this, some editors are kind of starting to become more understanding, but there's still that kind of pressure where it's like, you're writing for a white audience, largely, if, if you're trying to get your books published, your first audience is likely white agents and white editors and what they think makes sense for so-called black stories. And sometimes they, they don't really have, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't have the range to sort of understand the multiplicity of and the diversity of voices that black authors have and the kind of stories that they can tell especially when you bring in the business side of it and the business side says, well, such and such did well. So we need more books like such and such, right? Like Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give did really well. So we want more books like that. I want to touch on a point you made about multiplicity. Mm -hmm. In that same letter you wrote that I referred to, you went on to say, and I'm going to quote you here because I think it's powerful and important. Mm -hmm. You wrote, the thing is black people are not the same. I can't say this loudly enough. We exist throughout the diaspora, inflected differently by culture, religion, geography, gender, class, sexuality, political ideology, and so on. We share similar histories and struggles, but we do not all have the same experiences. We do not all want to write the same kinds of stories, and it's presumptuous to believe otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned I wanted to come back to your work in your own writing how if at all do you resist a single story to borrow chimamanda adichie's term of black identity i do so by staying true to myself oh i love that 
you know, as a Nigerian Canadian and, you know, like I like to say, you know, I didn't grow up on certain books. You know, I mean, I read books obviously as a child, but what really made me love storytelling the most were video games. Really? Uh, video games and anime and RPGs and and those kind of like geeky type things. And that's what I draw from when I write my books. It's largely that. And so that doesn't mean that I can only write one kind of thing. But I think, you know, the perspective that I have as, you know, Nigerian Canadian that, that was born and grew up in Canada, that grew up on mostly geek stuff and that, that has my formative years were largely inflected by playing Final Fantasy games or watching anime and things like that. And so I'm not going to write the same thing as Chimamanda. I'm not going to write the same thing as Nnedi Okorafor. My work is going to largely reflect my voice, which is in and of itself a product of my environment and what I was into when I was a kid, you know? And I think letting people be true to their own voice rather than trying to push them into a certain box that you think they should fit just because of the color of their skin. You know, I think if we allow people to be true to their voice, then you're just going to get such a rich diversity of books by people of color that will surprise you, that will surprise you, that will surprise some in knowing that, you know, these are the kinds of stories and the kind of adventures that black kids can have or that Asian kids can have. You know, it doesn't always have to be about slavery or police brutality and such and such. And even if it is, there are different ways that you can, you know, approach that subject matter. So you just have to allow people to be true to their voice and who they are. I love that point. Thank you for sharing that, because I think that's so important for people who aspire to write to hear. Mm. Sarah, reading your Effigies books, I couldn't help but notice the emphasis that you place on collectivism and solidarity. Mm -hmm. And I found myself wondering, bear with me here because maybe I'm reading way too much into this, <laughs> but I found myself wondering whether in incorporating that theme, you were in any way responding to what I'll characterize as neoliberal discourses of individualism and competition. Was that the case at all? I very much, you know, a lot of my graduate studies work was learning about neoliberalism and what it means and what it's done to the public good. And I think that any story that, that allows for collectivism in the face of pressures to sort of the kind of pressures that force people to compete as individuals is automatically, I think, challenging neoliberalism as a formative culture. Because what you're pointing towards here is that neoliberalism is a formative culture. It's not just an economic system, but it's an economic system that has created a culture of, like you said, individualism competition. You know, I'm going to step on your back to get mine. I don't really care about, you know, the public good. And in fact, the public good has not only been dismantled by conservative forces, and there's there continues to be this attempt to dismantle everything to do with 
you know, welfare and, and public services and things like that. But it's also, you know, something that you're taught to kind of dislike or you're taught to dis- we're taught to distrust anything that sort of puts people in a community and collective and puts that community and collective above the um the the needs of the one i guess you could say and the wants of the one right so to say that we need each other to fix this problem we can't do it on our own and that is really what you see in with the effigies i don't know if i was necessarily thinking like neoliberalism as as like a central organizing theme of the story but i was thinking about girls coming together as a team knowing that they need each other to fight this force to protect people to save their communities and that is automatically going to be different than the kind of framework that tells you that no greed is good <laughs> um and i am the most important thing here and, and what i want is most important which is something that since the 80s that's been kind of like the organizing factor in American society, North American society, but has proven to be disastrous because we do need each other. And and I think this pandemic has made that clear. We are intertwined, right? What one person does affects everyone. So we are part of a community and, and we need to behave like that. And I think what made me think of that in your books especially in the beginning of Fate of Flames, it's when they are distant from each other or unwilling to give themselves to the others that the characters are the weakest. Mm -hmm. As the story goes on, that, of course, shifts dramatically, the relationships, I think, with one another. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in the third book as well, they're kind of broken apart and you kind of see what that does, you know, to Belle, who kind of devolves a lot. Mm-hmm. in a third book when she does try to go it alone it's like she doesn't know whether she's coming or going you know and we do need each other we need each other as a society i came across an interview you gave in which you argued that i'm going to quote you because we're products of culture and culture is political the art we create will always be both cultural and political whether we realize it or not Beyond the emphasis that you place in the Effigies books on collectivism as an antidote to individualism and competition, are there other ways in which you're cognizant of the young adult fiction you write being political? You know, I think just the act of writing is political because the act of using your voice is itself an articulation and an assertion that you do have a voice and that your voice matters and that in and of itself is political. I know that the bones of ruin is a series, which I bring a lot of my critical race thinking and my post-colonialism, my training in post-colonialism sort of to bear in that work. So there are times when I am being overtly political, but I think, one doesn't need to be overtly political or to have training in, you know, graduate training in critical theory to be political. Sometimes just being marginalized 
your voice is already sort of discounted in society. So when you speak, then you're acknowledging yourself. You're acknowledging yourself as important, your experiences as mattering, your trauma as mattering. Because sometimes you live in a society, even in a family, that might not take seriously your trauma, your past, your experiences. So to be able to write that in any kind of writing, whether it's a novel or a piece, you know, a, a, a public writing piece for a magazine or anything like that, that is political, it's powerful, and it could potentially help others. That's such a fantastic point. You mentioned a moment ago you have a new book coming out, I believe in September 2021. Yes. Bone of Runes. And having read the description online, I'm super excited about it. Thank you. Would you mind giving people who are listening a sense of what they can expect? Well, the book is about an African tightrope dancer. And this is set in an alternative Victorian era London. So in the 1880s. And there are people in Victorian era London who have special powers. And nobody knows where they came from. This African tightrope dancer named Iris is one of them. She has special powers. And she kind of ends up embroiled in this secret societies tournament that takes all of these people with powers and puts them in basically a battle to the death. So what you'll see is, you know, a lot of people of color in Victorian London. Uh, You'll see a lot of people, you'll see a lot of people with powers, very X-Men, you know, if if you like that kind of thing. And you'll also see kind of my look at power relations in society, power relations during the Victorian era, because Again, this was the time where you have a reinforcement of, you know, empire. Europe was going around colonizing and, you know, the British Empire and and European empires were really consolidating themselves at the time. So you kind of see like a, a window into that history. But you also get some really cool, like, apocalyptic, supernatural fighting. <laughs> cool. I, I was actually going to ask, I think you started to answer my next question for you. It was what inspired you to set the story in Victorian times? You know, there's a period that I've, I've worked in, mm. in my academic work, but it's also something that I feel, you know, I love stuff like Sherlock Holmes and there was recently the Enola Holmes movies and things like that. And I think, you know, like Penny Dreadful as well as TV show. Oh my God, that was fantastic. I know, I, I love those, but I often question the ways in which like people of color might sporadically come, but they'd be on the sidelines or their histories would not be really looked at in a way. Mm. Their histories would not be delved into. Like how are people of color actually treated at this time? It's actually very complex and multifaceted, and but you don't, often go into that into these kinds of stories because these stories aren't really that interested in telling those narratives telling the stories of of these black or asian you know 
side characters. So I kind of wanted to center people of color and to give a sense of that this is a Victorian era that wasn't just white. It couldn't be because of all of the exchange, the cultural and, and you know, sometimes slavery in terms of the enslaved and all kinds of things that were happening at this time that you kind of, it's, it's strange to me to write a work in the Victorian era at a time with rampant imperialism, colonialism, slavery in some points of the world and not, not even consider it, not even talk about this. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, and you alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation, does your work as an academic influence your fiction writing? And I think I just got my answer to that because <laughs> it sounds like you're drawing heavily on research you've done for this book. Yeah, absolutely. My work as a creative writer really influences not all of the work that I write, but a lot of it and provides that kind of um, framework did you say that this is going to be a trilogy also? Mm -hmm. Wow. When you write a trilogy, maybe I should ask, when you write a book, do you outline? Yes. When I, when I um, write a book, especially when I write a trilogy, I absolutely outline. And I think it depends. Like sometimes you can do a chapter by chapter. Other times you can't quite do it to, to that detailed level. But I do try to outline just because, again, of my organizational skills and just the way that I think. It really helps. It really helps to have an outline. You know, it doesn't mean you have to stick to it, but just having a map kind of, I think, will help a lot of writers feel not so unmoored and just just kind of floating around. Yeah, that's what I wondered. I, like with the effigies, it's, it's a long series, and I, I wondered if at the outset you have a sense of where that's all going to go or if you're writing your way to the end, because I would think it'd be relatively easy to get lost. Yeah, usually, I don't, actually, I don't know if editors do this, but my editor was really good with asking for a synopsis of all three books. Up front at the beginning? Yeah, up front. Oh, wow. Wow. And I think it was in order to make sure that something like that doesn't happen. Yeah. In order to make sure that you're not just getting lost and you're writing, you know, just going wherever you want. So, and, and, and just, you know, having a story that doesn't come together. So I think it's good. You know, I, I had to do that with Bones of Ruin as well. And, and that's helping me to put the story together. But, you know, it's all in the details, so that's why outlines are very important <laughs> for me anyway. There's a lot of people that they're just pantsers, and it actually helps them to just do whatever they want and go wherever, and it all comes together somehow. But I just can't be like that. <laughs> it's too hard. Beyond your new book, are there other projects, fiction or otherwise, that you're working on that you'd like to promote? Uh, I'm always writing in different genres, like I'm writing middle grade two and, you know, it's just a matter of getting it published. So, you know, I don't like to talk in depth yeah. about things that aren't published yet just because you don't know. 
Sure. If it's going to get picked up, but I do kind of dabble in, in, um, in work that's not just young adult fiction. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, Sarah, it's been really a pleasure to talk with you and thank you for letting me learn from you. As I mentioned, I'm really excited to see the new book come out in September and wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. All the questions that you asked kind of made me remember things that I had forgotten, (laughs) (laughs) especially when you're talking about like, you know, the process of when I was an undergrad and things like that and what made me really think that I could get published. And it just made me remember like, oh, yeah, that's how it was. So it's nice to, to have that trip down memory lane and to know how far you've come. So thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of this month's show. I want to extend a huge thank you to Sarah for making time to talk with me about her work and for allowing us to learn from her. As a reminder, you can find her Effigies books, Fate of Flames, Siege of Shadows, and Legacy of Light at your local bookstore. And remember to watch for her newest novel, The Bones of Rune, which comes out later this year in September. And of course, thank you for supporting this podcast through making time to listen to it. As I mentioned at the start of the show, I'll be taking a hiatus to catch my breath, but I look forward to seeing you back here again soon when we'll continue to talk about the craft of storytelling. Till then, happy reading. <laughs>